everyone, Lonnie here. I'm a story expert, owner of Chipperish Media, and the person with 14 years of experience making podcasts. Not that you could tell from this episode. Look, a little behind the scenes here. Uh, Elisa hasn't done this before, and she had a new mic and a million new things to learn and didn't realize that the mic would pick up her touching the desk and flipping through pages. That is completely on me because I'm the one with the experience here. But as I was listening while editing, I realized that not all of the audio issues here are on her end. Uh, for some reason, my mic was also picking up my every movement, and I somehow positioned it in a way where it also picked up my breath more than usual. But you know, that happens. There are off days. Okay. But then, about halfway through, Elisa's smoke alarm battery went dead, and it started doing that little intermittent chirpy thing. Um, I don't actually need to to warn you about that. I'm pretty sure I edited all the chirps out before she went and replaced the battery, but you should have that context because right after we got done with that, the guy who lives in my neighborhood that likes to ride his motorcycle past my house when I'm recording, well, he rode his motorcycle past my house when I was recording. Because of course he did. Then about an hour in, you'll notice what sounds like a dozen or so chirping birds who I can only presume were sewing Elisa's dress for the prince's ball. It's kind of lovely, so that's not actually a warning as much as a, hey, you're going to want to notice this when it happens. But wait, we're not done. Because a few minutes after the dressmaker birds finally calm down, sirens go past my house. Sirens. So now at this point while I'm editing, it just became funny. But I wanted to give you guys a heads up because at first, for those of you listening on headphones, the sound issues might bother you a bit in the beginning. But the content is great. Elisa is brilliant. And I would listen to her talk next to a construction site. So trust me, it's worth it. Plus, after a while, this shit gets funny. And when you start laughing... And trust me, you will. I would like you to remember that I spent hours editing most of it out. What's left is the stuff I either couldn't get out or it was after it was funny and I was like, fuck it, it stays. And that's why we're not re-recording this episode because this is how life works. It is imperfect and it's messy and I wouldn't have it any other way because perfection is a destructive pursuit. So enjoy the show. And for those of you who are new, welcome to Chipperish Media. Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and naked man in a glass box, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, DC Comics editor, and sleep demon, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we are going to be talking about the intro and volume one, Preludes and Nocturnes. Issue one, Sleep of the Just, which was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. You threatened and conjoled and pleaded for gifts that were not mankind's to receive nor mine to give. Time to wake up. Elisa, here we are. We're finally, after all these months of talking about this project, you and I are hanging out together and we are going to be talking about Sandman. And this is so exciting and so fun for me because I'm relatively new to like reading comics critically. So uh, working with you, DC Comics editor, you worked on the Sandman series itself. This is really, really exciting. Um, so first, um, welcome to the world of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> We're so happy to have you. 
Thank you. It's 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 been terrifying with the microphone levels, but uh, now my dog is resting <laughs> at my feet, and all is good. Everything is completely fine, and we are moving through this. This is uh, anybody who listens to Chipperish uh, Media knows that uh, I do this uh, rather frequently. Is I will talk to somebody, and I'll just be like, "Hey, let's do a podcast together." Trust me, it'll be fun. But this podcast was actually your idea. I pulled you in for an episode of Jed Bartlett as my president way back in the beginning, like one of the first things that I did in Chipperish. Loved working with you. You and I have kind of been in the same writing circles for a long time. Uh, but it was your idea to do a podcast on salmon. Why did you decide you wanted to do that? Well, one of the things I love listening to your shows, I love using stories, um, you know, usually they're television shows or, or books mm-hmm. where people take them and analyze them and use them as a way of talking about writing and story structure. And I thought, I haven't really seen that done with comics yet. And since Sandman's Mm -hmm. going to be a Netflix TV series, I thought it would have two, you know, two good functions. One for people who might be interested in, you know, how the sausage is made so they could make some comic sausage. That would be useful. Mm -hmm. And that, (laughs) you know, for people who might be interested in the TV series, this would give them a way to, you know, we can hold their hands while they read comics, either for the first time or for the first time since, you know, they grew grew chest hair. I love it. All right. So here we are now. We're at the beginning of Preludes and Nocturnes, right? We, uh, we're looking over the introduction, which is, you know, a, a quick intro from uh, Patrick Rothfuss and um, and also from Karen Berger, who is a, a Sandman editor and the editor that actually launched the Sandman series. Um, but what we're talking about today, as far as the narrative, is the first issue, Sleep of the Just, which sets up like the launching pad for this whole thing. So um, I'm just curious, what's your overall feeling about this issue? Well, this is the issue that hooked me. So I mm-hmm. I was, this was, um, I think, 90 or 91. And mm-hmm. I was in, um, in graduate school at Columbia's fiction writing program. And I knew I was going to need a job. And yeah. so I, I ended up uh, asking, you know, I, I sent out letters to Marvel and DC. And I came in for an interview mm-hmm. And um, they gave me a bunch of comics to read of the current comics. And mm-hmm. one of those was Sandman. And while I, th- wow. I don't know if I waited a week or two weeks to hear back, you know, if I had the second mm-hmm. interview, I went and spent about, I, I can't remember how many comics after the first issue had already <laughs> been, but I went and bought them knowing that if mm-hmm. I were hired, I would get them free because this first issue just hooked me completely. I remember just, it, it's, it, it was cold chills and happiness. And I felt, you know, like, like Neil was, you know, singing my, my life with his scary, scary words and pictures. <laughs> He does that. He really has that effect. He's um, an absolutely amazing writer. And this was actually done toward the beginning of his career. I mean, he was kind of unknown before this. He was. He was. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when they were looking for an artist um, or for an artistic team, they had to find someone who'd be willing to sign on to a monthly with this, you know, nothing unknown writer. And here we are all these years later. um, And we're about to launch this, uh, this Netflix series, which is really exciting. We're definitely going to be talking about that a little bit later. Um, I actually really enjoyed Sleep of the Just. Um, I am really hard to catch 
at the beginning of a story. Um, I have to really like push myself through the first couple of chapters and give it a chance to get me, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, Sandman did that pretty much straight off with Sleep of the Just. Um, there was so much happening in here. Um, and there were so many interesting ways in which the the narrative worked. And in episodic series storytelling, um, there's there's a really interesting way you can work with the narrative because Dream, as you know, the Sandman, as our, our um, eponymous character, is actually not the protagonist of Sleep of the Just as an independent in- episodic story. Um, but I just, like, Neil has been able to grab me with pretty much everything that he's ever done. I'm trying to think of a novel of his that I've read where I wasn't completely into it right from jump. And I cannot think of one. I'm like, and Nancy Boy's into it. Ocean at the End of the Lane, into it. Haven't read Coraline, but I did see the movie and I think I would be into it. So it's there's just something that Neil has this ability to kind of pull a story through uh, through these places of metaphor, you know, into the moment that you're in and just make it a place that you can sit down in and be like, all right, let's go, you know. Um, and the thing is that um, right now in this process, I am really just starting to get my graphic novel, like comic book sea legs. Because when I go into a story, like I'm all about the narrative, I don't often care about the visual art. And I mean, I, you know, was a television and film major in college, you know, I was always into TV. TV and film, but I was always about the narrative. And if I could just listen to it and get the narrative, like I really don't care about the visuals as much. Um, but the thing with comic books is that the narrative itself is so dense. Um, you're reading a page, but you're not just reading the words on the page. You have to read every stroke of the pen, every bit of color. And that really forces me as somebody who is simply about what are the characters doing and why are they doing it, um, that I need to be here for the visual experience. And I've already read the the entirety of Preludes and Nocturnes as of the time of this recording. And I had read Sleep of the Just, but I read it the way that I read everything, where I'm like zipping through it. I'm like, let's go. And then when I sat down for today's episode and, you know, read these pages very deeply, looking at the art, looking at every little stroke of the pen, I realized how much, um, how much more I got from that experience. And I love that this is an exercise in slowing down and in savoring a narrative, um, And I think that's something that's essential when you're reading comic books. Absolutely. Um, One of the interesting things in terms of writing comics is that you're trying to write in a pretty spare way. The first, this was written as a full script, kind of like a TV (laughs) or a film script. Um, One of the differences is, differences is that after the editor, the person who's going to read the script the most is the artist. So a lot of Neil's skill is communicating with an artist. Maybe some of the details won't exactly make it onto the uh, into the art because some of the details are about mood, are about what someone's feeling or thinking, so that it, it transmits through the artwork. Neil's really good at not overdirecting an artist and not, mm-hmm. you know, saying, you know, often beginning yeah. comic book writers will say the person frowned or whatever. And, and, and so they're, they're, they're sort of directing the artist in a, in a puppet master sort of way. So this, this is a different 
kind of writing. And because the artist will have to look back at this again and again, it's a very spare writing. And in a way, what you get is the kind of phyllo pastry, densely packed meanings and mm-hmm. symbolism that you get in poetry. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and it does require that deeper, slower reading. Um, and for anybody who may be new to me and my whole theory work that I do with uh, with storytelling and reading, um, reading is what you do when you engage with any narrative um, critically. So if you are engaging with a video game critically, you are reading. If you are engaging with, of course, a comic book n- narr- uh, critically, you are reading. TV shows, movies, you are reading them. Um, so a lot of times you'll hear me refer to reading regardless of which format we're in. When we move to the TV show, I will talk about reading the TV show. That is just standard language for me because you are reading. Audiobooks, also reading. And I don't understand why anybody would say otherwise. But anyway, um, so it's it's reading is is independent of form. But the, that deep, deep reading um, that you do with comic books and that I'm learning to do now, which is another reason, I mean, aside from the fact that this is introducing me to a property that is new to me, you know, uh, which is really, really fun. Um, what I'm really enjoying now is learning to do that, that deep, deep reading rather than this rushed kind of, you know, skimming through the text of something, you know, to actually spend that time sinking in and letting it get all, letting your skin get pruny with all of the, the art and the, um, and every single, uh, word, every single bit of dialogue, everything, everything has so much meaning is carrying, is carrying so much weight. I mean, this is like a lot of work for very, very little to do um, for a single page or a single panel. Um, so anyway, all right, let's go ahead, I guess, and get into our summary. Absolutely. In Sleep of the Just, we open in June of 1916 with Dr. John Hathaway of the Royal Museum showing up at Roderick Burgess's house with the Magdalene Grimoire, which Burgess has requested and Hathaway had originally refused to hand over. Hathaway recently lost his son in the war, however, and he hands it over to Burgess and asks if he'll really be able to stop death. Burgess says yes and plans to hold his ritual at the next full moon. No one need ever die again, says Burgess. A few days later, it's almost midnight, and we see multiple people dreaming about the mundane to the pleasant to the terrifying, while Burgess prepares for the ceremony, saying that even if they fail, he has control of Hathaway, and the Royal Museum will be theirs to plunder. In the dark with his group of mages, Burgess performs the ceremony, meant to capture death, and he fails, but it's not a total loss. He hasn't captured death, but he has captured the King of Dreams, and that ain't nothing. He takes Dream's ruby, helmet, and pouch of sand, and leaves him naked in a glass cage. Across the world, our dreamers either fall asleep with little waking or stay awake in terror of their dreams. Either way, something is very, very wrong. Roderick Burgess keeps Dream imprisoned, and Dream waits. 1920, four years later, Professor Hathaway commits suicide after he is disgraced over the loss of many important manuscripts from the Royal Museum. He hopes his suicide will unmask Roderick Burgess, but Burgess uses magic to burn Hathaway's suicide note, and the man dies in disgrace. Meanwhile, the world is being overtaken by the sleepy sickness in which people dream but don't wake or stay awake always and end up killing themselves. 
1926. Burgess is frustrated that the prisoner won't talk. His son Alex figures out that they have captured an endless named Dream, which Burgess already knew, which is why he ordered the guards never to sleep while watching over him. 1930, Ruthven Sykes, Burgess's second-in-command, takes off with Burgess's girlfriend, Ethel Cripps, and many of the Order's treasures, and heads to San Francisco, where he trades Dream's helmet to a sibilant demon in return for protection. He is given an amulet that kept him safe, until Ethel took off with it in 1936, leaving Sykes susceptible to Burgess's magical wrath. 1939, the sleepy sickness continues to take hold of its victims, except Wesley Dodd, who goes out at night and uses gas to put bad guys to sleep, and then puts sand in their eyes. Wesley Dodd sleeps the sleep of the just. 1947, Roderick Burgess dies. 1955, his son Alex tries to get Dream to agree to give him power immortality and promise that Dream will not exact revenge upon his release. Dream refuses. In the 70s, Alex hands over the running of the order to his boyfriend, Paul, who uses it as a scam machine. In the 80s, Alex begs Dream to just do what he asks, and Dream refuses and waits. In 1988, one of the guards falls asleep while guarding Dream. Dream collapses, and the guards open the case to see if he's dead. When they do, he blows sand on them, and they fall asleep. 72 years, Dream is finally free. Weakened, he travels through dreams, grabbing food and clothing. Now, he wants his stuff back. Alex Burgess dreams and finds himself before Dream on a throne. He weakly tries to apologize, but Dream isn't interested. Dream curses him to eternal waking, living in nightmare as he sleeps. Okay, so very, very cool stuff. Now, I have called... Our, our main character, our Sandman character, Dream, that's kind of one of his names, but also like Morpheus is one of his names. And so there's a lot of stuff I think we get to a little bit later. So if you hear us calling him Morpheus, Morpheus Dream, same dude, right? Yes, he's got <laughs> other names. One of uh, you also mentioned the Endless. And so for mm-hmm. newcomers, the Endless are a family of archetypal concepts. And Mm -hmm. they are, in this mythology, older than the gods. And there's this idea that we're going to get introduced to, that gods rise and fall in power depending on the number of people who still believe and worship in them. Kind of Mm -hmm. the Tinkerbell uh, idea that, you know, Mm -hmm. you you lose Mm -hmm. power when you lose worshipers. But the Mm -hmm. endless are not as beholden to to this kind mm-hmm. of belief they gain their power perhaps just from the the primariness of a lot of these concepts and i think mm-hmm. one of the things that's really really cool here is that we start out of course with a classic story idea of you know why should we care about this character well we're going to see somebody who has lost his power and all of, you know, his possessions. And we're going to, it's a comeback story. Mm-hmm. But we also start with a character that is, is you know, he's defined by being not death in the beginning. And you think death is right. the exciting one, is the powerful one. And you think, well, mm-hmm. dream, that's lesser. And a large part of what Neil is doing there is setting you up to learn just how important and powerful dream is. 
both as, as, yeah. as a being and as a metaphor. And as a concept, yeah, as a absolutely. Concept. Well, this is one of the things, too, that gets you grounded in character, is that you open up with vulnerability. We, um, One of the things that I teach in my narrative theory courses is that character is basically kind of a balance of three elements, that we've got strengths, the things they can do, weaknesses, the things they can't do, and then vulnerability are the things that can hurt them. And mm -hmm. so here we have Dream, who is an extremely powerful character, who is at the very beginning, the first moment we meet him struck low, you know, all of everything's taken away from him. He is captured. He is encased in glass. He cannot leave, you know, um, and he's also not even the one that they wanted. Like yeah. he's not even, so he's, he's the, he's the consolation prize, you know? Um, and so all of that together is insult upon insult. And then all we see is this dude who just waits like his superpower is the ability to just wait you know and um one of the things that i find really interesting about sleep of the just is that dream is actually not the protagonist of this story this episode funny little side story to this is that originally yeah. neil gaiman wanted to write a character called the phantom stranger and um mm -hmm. and i think my memory which is now a little cobwebby is that he was mm -hmm. told no no you know that character is sort of mysterious but he's not a proactive enough character to be this main protagonist we want you to pick a more you know active central character and mm -hmm. you know in the end um of course neil mm -hmm. ends up writing the sandman and he is often not the key chief you know mover and shaker in his stories he's he's always a catalyst and in the end he does have yeah. a very strong story arc but it's it's mm -hmm. um very much an ensemble kind of kind of writing which is really interesting now of course it's you know it's on the label right preludes and nocturnes like this is a prologue story sleep of the just this launches us into what will be dreams story you know as we move through preludes and nocturnes um but but what i find interesting is that here we are introducing this character and in the opening story he's not even the protagonist a protagonist basically has three qualities we see the story through their pov their active pursuit of their goal provides the motive force for the story and they have the most to lose that they fail. Mm -hmm. Roderick Burgess is actually the protagonist. He is the one in active pursuit of a goal. And when he dies, he passes his protagonism on to his son, Alex. So between Roderick and Alex, they are the protagonists of this story. And again, for anybody who just needs a little clarity on this, heroes and villains do not map to protagonist and antagonist. Protagonist is actively in pursuit of a goal. We're in their POV. They have the most to lose. And the antagonist has one job block the protagonist, right? So here we have Dream is the antagonist of this story. Um, and what I love about this is that his power comes in his ability to just outlast them. He does nothing except refuse them. You know, um, and they come and they ask him and they say, we will set you free. Just do this for us, whatever. And he's like, no, you know, um, and so it's so it's so neat at the end how when dream becomes free, 
we are now flipping and he becomes the protagonist. He is in pursuit. We have a classic quest set up, right? He's got to get his ruby. He's got to get his hat. He's got to get his little patch of sand, right? So he's got all these things that he has a very specific goals that he is in pursuit of. And he suffers quite a lot. His power is incredibly depleted. He has to run through all these dreams. He barely has enough energy to curse the shit out of Alex, um, you know, so that the remainder of his days can be just as miserable as, as is deserved and he will get and exact his revenge. Um, but uh, but I love that little flip at the end and then we are getting the launching pad ready for Dream's pursuit of his goal, um, which I think is really fun. You know, one of the things that this method of storytelling gives us is myth-making because I think mm -hmm. part of what Neil does so well is create stories that feel like ancient myths in and of themselves. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to invest a character with mystery and power, you really can't have them constantly on stage and you certainly can't mm -hmm. have them explaining a lot. So there's a lot of building up of Sandman as, mm -hmm. you know, as this mythic character, someone who's both powerful and sort of inscrutable and enigmatic. Um, and I, I think that's part of the reason why the story starts the way it does. Yeah, no, it's and it's really good. And it does. We have this incredible time scale, right? This is like an 80 year you and know, it was changed issue. for Netflix, I believe, um, because 1988 is no longer the current moment. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So I think they changed it to whatever it is, 125 years. So that's mm -hmm. so. Yeah, Sandman just waits that's even longer. Be fun. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's going to be really fun. Yeah, I like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a long time scale for one, you know, f like relatively short story, right? You know, that's just sort of launching this whole thing. And one of the things that um, that I talk about in my, my narrative writing courses is that you have to think about your scale. Like, what is your scale? That at a certain point, you lose your momentum, right? If there isn't a time pressure on it. That's why, like, it's a classic thing that, like, you got to make $50,000 in 30 days or you're going to lose your gym, like that kind of thing. Like that's a classic kind of time lock pressure that writers will put in their stories, which are really effective at like building a basic, you know, structure that you can work with. But here we have the exact opposite of that. We have he'll just wait. They're mortal. They're going to die. And the thing that's really interesting is that the thing they were trying to capture and control in the first place is death and that death, the concept of death. Right. The concept of time passing and then what eventually happens to all mortals, you know, is that they're going to die, that that is the thing that brings them down in the end. In order to have that, in order to have him live out not just Roderick Burgess's timeline, but his son Alex's timeline as well, is that he can just sit there and wait and the incredible effect that this has, it's kind of one of those situations where like, we this is when we understand why writing is about principles and not rules, right? It is not a rule that you have to have a time lock and the pressure and that you can't have a, a grand time scale. But that if you're going to do a grand time scale, you've got to make sure you're going to be able to make that work. And 
Neil Gaiman does that beautifully here because with all this time that passes, as we see these lives that are lost, we have a couple of, you know, people that we that we revisit throughout this time scale and we see that their lives are just being eaten away by dreams absence, you know, uh, that's uh, the sleepy sickness. Um and so we're moving through this and it charges dream with that powerful sense of age and mystery and mythology. And so while it's not something that I would recommend in the hands of a novice, um, here we have Neil Gaiman who really knows how to make that work. And he doesn't need that principle of the time lock because he is locked in time because time has different meaning for, for somebody like Dream. For someone who is endless. Endless. And, mm-hmm. you know, the there's something else that gets set up in this first issue, which is, I think, what hooked me and maybe part of what hooked you. I think that right away, you can see that this is not just a story where you're deep in the point of view of one protagonist, and you're going to see the world just through their eyes. It's not even the kind of ensemble book, which I also enjoy, where, you know, you're Mm -hmm. going to follow this band of five people and in turn you'll find out about each of them. Mm-hmm. No, what you get here is glimpses of stories that could be entire comic books or, or you know, mm-hmm. novellas in their own right. So you get, you know, a woman who is mysteriously unable to wake, another person who's, <laughs> you know, haunted by nightmares. You get all of these little their vignettes, the way they're they're described to us, but you could see how each of them is sort of a story in its own right. And that's one of the mm-hmm. things that it, it's both deeply personal, but, you know, Neil is setting up here, this story will take you all over the place. You will see the people who are impacted by these mythic events and you will care about them. Some of them are going to get punished. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going to get rewarded. And then the thing which makes this an unusual horror story is it's not just the evil who are punished, which is Mm -hmm. the way a lot of horror works. And it's not just that good people come to bad ends, which is the way other horror stories often go. It's that Mm -hmm. like real life, there is a certain random element to whether the evil will be punished, the good will suffer unintentionally you know there, there's there's a funny nuanced side to it well yeah it's one of the things that we look for in fiction is that it it kind of distills down um life life is noisy right and in any given moment in real life you've got like 85 things going on at once you know uh fiction focuses on one line you know or sometimes multiple lines but like it's focused around a theme or around what it is that you're doing in that particular story so that we can focus on it and understand the complete arc of that narrative you know from beginning to end um and the thing that a lot of times we look for our stories to provide is a sense of emotional justice mm-hmm. right the good Good and well and the bad and badly and everything at the end of the story is put right. And most of our stories actually do that, at least in, in Western culture. We really like the idea that there is justice in the world, that there is some kind of fairness. Um, and I see in Sandman, and of course, without having read the whole run, I cannot speak for the whole run, but that that is not an interest in this story, that that is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about justice. You know, we're talking about 
how things happen, how evil really works and evil works by, you know, creating suffering for good people. And then bad people like Roderick Burgess, you know, didn't really lose much. He was incredibly powerful and he lived a long life. You know, I mean, yeah, he kept this guy, you know, prisoner, but he got what he wanted. I mean, even, you know, when his trusted sidekick, Ruthven Sykes, ran off with his girl and his stuff, you know, um, eventually, because Ethel also ditched Ruthven after a while and took all the things that were protecting him, uh, he was able to get his vengeance, you know. So Roderick Burgess, as a really bad dude who was like, hey, I may not have captured death, but now I got this dude, I'll accept this consolation prize and keep him in a glass bubble naked for decades, you know. Um, but also like that he just, you know, he'll plunder the Royal Museum and take all these manuscripts and all of this stuff. Um, like he's a bad dude who gets to live a long life and, you know, die in his sleep. Like, you know, I mean, he doesn't suffer a whole lot. Alex suffers, you know, a bit at the end. Alex is kind of the, um, the weak, you know, son who doesn't, he didn't really want to do it. He's got this whole thing where like, it wasn't me, it was daddy. But at the same time, he's still demanding the same thing, you know, infinite power, immortality, and a promise not to exact revenge, you know, from dream. Um, and the thing that I love too, is that, you know, dream when he faces down Alex is like, you demanded from me something that I couldn't give you, and that you weren't owed. That was not yours to wield. It was not yours to have. It was not mine to give. And I love that moment, you know, where he's like, you demanded something of me that I couldn't give you anyway, you know, and you kept me captive this whole time. And he exacts revenge on Alex, which, you know, the same way that trauma is generational, Evil can be generational too. Like it gets the sins of the fathers, right? Absolutely. But one of the great things that's also being set up here is a bit about Dream's character. I mean, right away mm -hmm. we can see that he is patient, but you know, there's there's that old love is patient. Well, in his case, you know, vengeance is patient. He mm -hmm. really wants to you know, he, he, he wants vengeance and he yeah. is rigid in, you, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're going to see more of it, but these aspects of who dream is the choices he makes and how he does wield his power is going to really set things up for the whole arc of his character through the series. And that's a difference, I think, from how comics that I knew had worked in the past. There, there was, you know, we're going back into the late 80s, early 90s. Not only were comics different, TV was different. So when you had some serialized, mm -hmm. um, you know, story that was coming into your home every week or every month, these characters tended not to change. You know, you mm -hmm. didn't, you, if you, I'm trying to think of that era, Cheers, you know, Sam the Barman yeah. was not someone who was going to, I mean, over the course of very long series, they did begin to change, but that was 
actually the development. Because we had to reset. Yes. We had to reset every week so that reruns could be viewed in any order and it didn't matter. We didn't start to see serial storytelling, real story arcs happening in television until we had the record, until we had VCRs, until people had the ability, as I did with Moonlighting, every Tuesday night at nine, I ran home and I made sure that I had the tape in oh so God. that I could get all of Moonlighting. Moonlighting. Yes. No one's mentioned that to me in so long. I love well, okay, that's another story. But oh my god! Well, one of these days we'll do a podcast on moonlighting. It'll be I awesome. Would love that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so exactly what you're saying that this, and one of the cool things that we can say here at the beginning about Sandman is it was really one of the few comics at that point that was allowed to end when the writer had finished his arc. I mean, we think of yeah. Batman and Wonder Woman. A writer would come in, come with a very strong version of the character sometimes they would have new origin stories for that character Mm -hmm. but when that writer was finished someone else came in and continued that property Mm -hmm. and so you know one of the things that made Sandman singular was I think people recognizing you know people like Karen Berger and Paul Levitz who was then um, president of DC Comics you know that that this was something really special and it should be allowed to live and have its arc and then finish Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And that's a wonderful thing, too, to be able to have that singular vision, bring it from beginning to end, which is something you don't get a lot in comics. Comics actually share a lot of DNA with soap operas, you know, and that you just keep that story rolling and you just keep doing it and whatever it takes, you just keep moving. And if a writer leaves, a writer leaves and another one comes in and picks up the thread and puts it in their own way. But like, that's why you would have, you know, situations in soap operas. I was a big fan of Days of Our Lives in the 80s yes. watched all of that oh my, oh my goodness God. Lisa how how did Wait, we not meet just, so much earlier in our lives I just lives? need to tell you that I had a friend yes. who was the head uh, soap writer I think it was As the World Turns and when uh-huh. I was working as an editor at TC she told me that she could hook me up and if I wanted to write for the soaps in the 80s um, oh my yeah, goodness she would, so I had to make a decision if I was going to stay with comics or go to soaps and I stayed with comics but anyway that was my road mm-hmm. not taken There's a lot of shared DNA there, though there really is, because you just have to grind that story out. And so this is where you see how form will really affect narrative. You know, um, one of the things I talk about is that narrative is narrative, and regardless of form, story is story is story. But how that story expresses itself is what the form does. You know, the form gives you the form for carrying the story. It is the delivery mechanism for, for narrative. And so the form that you're working with is going to inevitably have a huge influence on the ways in which those stories are finally realized. Um, and comics and uh, and soap operas had a lot of that same kind of grinded out daily episodic, you know, uh, nobody could record it. So, you know, people, there was always somebody who was paying attention, but people wouldn't remember what was going on back then. So if you change that backstory, or if you change the way this character works, or if you rapidly age somebody who was five yesterday, who today is 18 and having wild sex, right? You know, uh, that's the kind of thing that like, okay, we're just okay, just go with it. That's kind of how it works. So to see in a in a comics um, format at this same time period that television was starting to get into these longer um, arcs, we were moving in in television from the age of the producer, like the Norman Lear, you know, kind of thing, James L. Brooks kind of thing into the story, um, the showrunner creator where we get into your Joss Whedon's and your um, 
um, your Glenn Gordon Karen from Moonlighting. We had story arcs going on in Moonlighting, too. That was one of the earliest places where that happened. Your big story arcs in X-Files with Chris Carter. We're seeing more and more of these showrunner creators kind of come in, take a story, and arc it completely until now we're at that point where we know as much as anything, as much as the stars, we know who the creator is on that show. Breaking Bad is Vince Gilligan. We got Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof, of course, launched by J.J. Abrams with Lost, right? So you know all of those names because those showrunner creators are also celebrities in those in those stories. And I see that Neil is doing this with Sandman, which I absolutely love. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, as you were saying this, I was thinking about how Fleabag and Phoebe Waller-Bridge mm-hmm. has another writing mm-hmm. partner who's pivotal, whose name I'm blanking on. I should have looked at oh, oh, no. You know, but she's got the writing partner mm-hmm. that is, I guess, the lesser yeah. known side of things. And this might be a good moment for me to just talk for a second about the artwork and the role of the artist yes. here. Because comics yes. are really collaborative. Whenever I teach um, comic books, especially to prose writers, I say, you know, if you don't want to collaborate, if what you want is just to be, you know, captain mm-hmm. of the ship completely, then prose is a much better way to do that. You, you know, in order to take advantage of a collaboration, you have to like dancing with someone else. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if if you're just wishing that you could draw the whole thing and the, you know, I, I think people often act as though, you know, I'll just, I'll just hire someone to draw this. And I'm thinking, but, but the <laughs> art is what, traditionally it was the artist who was more important in comics because it mm-hmm. was about the art. So in, in this case, mm-hmm. um, Sam Keith was the penciler. So when you're looking at this artwork, Sam Keith uh, was the penciler and Mike Dringenberg was the inker. And I'll just take a moment to mm-hmm. to talk about that. Um, yes. So Sam Keith was chosen. I think he had a very cool, you know, illustrative style, illustrative style. He, you know, could use a lot of shadows. There was a nice horror feel. He also did a kind of, you know, there are places where he goes a little less realistic, more exaggerated. And he brought in Mike Drangenberg, who, you know, kind of was a good marriage so that it didn't go too cartoony or caricaturish at any point. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a really glorious look. And it was after this issue that Sam felt he just wasn't happy I guess with how this was how how he was not satisfied with his art although I'm very satisfied I love it he also has a mm-hmm. great sense of design which is you look at some mm-hmm. of these pages and they're just beautifully designed to yes. lead the eye and 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 create this wonderful atmosphere so he dis- he agreed to stay on through this first storyline but was already talking about going and um and so we will see after this first storyline um Mike Dringenberg it takes over as the um, as the penciler. And mm-hmm. back in the day, also nowadays, a lot of the artists are doing things digitally. This was all done on comic book boards. So we had actual pencils. Sometimes the pages oh would my smell goodness. like cigarettes mm-hmm. if the artist was a smoker. So it was a much more <laughs> concrete, physical thing. I'm, I'm yeah. going to mention um, just uh, one other thing. I'm just going to double check the colorist. Um, because that's, mm-hmm. that's, was it Danny Vazo here? I, you think I would know this. This was before I actually came to work on the book. Um, mm-hmm. so, 
Yeah. So Danny, Daniel Vazo, Danny Vazo um, was the colorist. And so mm-hmm. he's also one of the contributing artists. And that, that that's a whole, you know, a whole wonderful school of, of how you use color to signal flashback to, mm-hmm. um, to, to sort of, you know, impact on mood. The last person that was contributing to this is Todd Klein. So Todd Klein was an amazing letterer. This was all hand lettered. And he Mm -hmm. was known, he's just won, like every year there's a lettering award. Uh, Todd Klein always won it because he was doing things (laughs) like creating different fonts for alien languages and 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 that's all by hand these aren't fonts they're like he's creating a lettering style yes and he that represents and that he yeah he did mm-hmm. that so what we used to do is we you know we we had a production you know bunch of people in production and so for the sandman's balloons which are reversed um instead of you know white with a black uh holding line you get you get that reversed and the lettering itself is white so he was, you know, that would be done in in production um, downstairs Mm -hmm. in-house. And all of that is really different now. But I just want to say that that's, all of these are things that contribute to our experience. And so there was Mm -hmm. this creative team. Just the fact that, you know, that Morpheus's, that Dream's word balloons are reversed. I don't know Mm -hmm. exactly how... That sounds in my head. I've never had a, a, an exact sound for that. But what it meant is that I could see that he was other. That even sometimes when God yeah. spoke, they their mm-hmm. you know lettering style was not reversed, and it made him significantly different. It was a kind of special mm-hmm. effect that really is unique to comics. Yeah, and that is a visual cue. Right. Again, so you have to be reading it carefully and looking at all of those choices and how they differ. Uh, Terry Pratchett did that a lot with his in his work and his Discworld novels. The gods would have a different font and be all caps. You know, whenever death spoke, you know, it was all caps and it was always it always had an impact, you know. And um, and I love that. I mean, to me, when I read it, it reads as telepathic mm. rather than spoken. Yeah. So to me and his voice voice to me feels very quiet and very gravelly and very much someone with whom you should not fuck right you know um so i i like that's how it reads to me but that's because of the way that i bring all of that together you know in my understanding of it so i'm loving all of this like insight behind the scenes which is awesome um and the thing that i also love about working with you on this is the deep well of knowledge you have about all of these things so we have a segment in endless the sandman podcast called lucian's library which is something that you named and I have no idea what it means because I haven't read that far. Can you explain to us <laughs> what Lucian's library yeah, is? Yeah, I think that was the um no the, the letter column was letters in the sand. Um so Lucien yeah. is a character we're we're gonna find out that Dream has a kingdom and the kingdom is called mm-hmm. the Dreaming. And it is mm-hmm. the composed of our dreams and it is where we all go when we yes. dream at night. And in that uh there's a castle and there is mm-hmm. a library in the castle. And in that library are all the books never written. So oh I know God. that I have contributed quite a few tomes there. <laughs> um, I believe, uh, you yes. know, many of my friends have. And, you know, some are writers and some are, you know, but how many mm-hmm. of us have not written a book that right. we, you know, maybe even mm-hmm. have titled? 
So, um, yeah. so, so it just seemed like the right, the right title for um, bits of esoterica. Yeah. So what esoterica do you have now? Okay, here's the thing for people who are listening a little behind the scenes stuff. I don't know anything about anything. Like uh, <laughs> some of you may be coming here from listen up a holes in which my whole shtick was that I don't know anything about anything. And Joshua Unruh would come in and give me all of this background information in the comics that was just beyond my understanding. He did all of the research. Um, but I have now from that experience picked up the ability to kind of like get where there might be an Easter egg. And I found one <laughs> that I'll bring in after you're done and see if you don't already have it to talk about. But um, all right, so bring us through Lucien's library. Let's uh, let's get into the esoterica in this, in this okay, issue. So as I may have mentioned, I fell in love with Sandman right away. And mm-hmm. one of the things I recognized early on as a Sandman reader, and you'll see this, I think, in the next uh, issue, mm-hmm. is that we're going to meet characters that if you were a reader of DC Comics back in the 70s, um, you will recognize them right away. But then there were other um, references that may seem just like throwaways. So I, I don't have the page open in front of me, but when when the elder Burgess, when Roderick Burgess is doing the summoning yeah. that he thinks is going to get him mm-hmm. death and gets dream, he calls out a bunch of names. All right. So I have opened to the page of the summoning and uh, the line is, I summon you in the names of the old lords, Namtar, Alatu, Morax, Nabirius, Klesh, Vipar, Maimon, we summon. Now, I have no idea if I've pronounced those all right. That's that's not in my <laughs> usual dialogue. But so yeah. we're gonna go we're gonna go into our way back machine. And so back mm-hmm. when I was an assistant editor on this book, you know there there wasn't and uh, the, the internet was a a. a, a you know, in its infancy. And so yeah. there, there was no Google mm-hmm. where you could just look this stuff up. And really the, the precedent is that writers of horror will make this stuff up. So you, if you see Beelzebub, you know that that's, you know, an accepted big mm-hmm. demon name, um, which is mm-hmm. Hebrew, by the way, for Lord of the Flies, though not everyone knows that. Uh-huh. Um, but, mm-hmm. but if you got these little names, you know, people would just make that, make that up. But Neil... I, I discovered pretty quickly as I was working on the books, didn't make stuff up. He would mm-hmm. actually have the research and these would be real names of Catholic, you know, obscure deities. Yeah. So um, ridiculous little story. I, I was trying to seem more knowledgeable. I didn't know what to do. And I, after work, I went into my <laughs> local paperback exchange where they would have books of mythology. I don't know even why I didn't go into a proper, you know, bookstore with tomes, mm-hmm. but I, I was probably rushing. And they didn't have any mythology books, but there was a, a a lovely woman there. And she said, well, I might have some at home. Why don't you come to my apartment? And I will. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and I, I will. You know, so I um, naturally went with her to her apartment. And I had forgotten mm-hmm. this till years later. I was at a reading and the fantasy writer Tamara Pierce was there. And she reminded uh-huh. me that she was that woman. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, so that was a, a pretty weird. <laughs> but anyway, um, here in Lucien's library, one of the first things that we will mention is that anytime there are names dropped, you can rest assured that they are not just Neil Gaiman making stuff up, but, uh, mm-hmm. but actual names of obscure minor 
demons and deities. Yeah. Well, okay. Now I'm going to tell you the thing that I picked up because I was so proud of myself, <laughs> right? Um, I know that there was an original Sandman in the golden age of DC, right? That there was already a hero called Sandman. It was completely different. And so when they're going through all of the people who are sleeping, they mention this dude, Wesley, Wesley Dodd, Dodd yes! right? And I saw him wearing that outfit, which looked super, you know, uh, super golden agey. Um, <laughs> and so so they had him and they said like he he actually doesn't have the problem with the dreaming because every night he goes out and he gets the bad guys by shooting them up with gas and he wears a gas mask and we have like the helmet for uh for dream which looks like a gas mask kind of you know crossed with that plague era doctors you know mask that would protect them during uh during the plague um that kind of like big horn nose sort of thing. Um, and so we're seeing that influence there. But of course, I looked up Wesley Dodd. Of course, he was the original Sandman. Of course, that was his stick. He would go out and he would either use the gas that would make the villains tell the truth, or he would just put them to sleep and drop sand on them. And then the police eventually would find them, you know, napping in the middle of downtown uh, New York, I guess, whatever. Um, but I just, I loved that I saw it and I, I've been trained by Joshua Unruh, who I'm going to give full credit for the fact that my eyes have now attuned that when I see something like that, I'm like, oh, I'll bet that was the original Sandman. And it was. And he had him in July of 1939, which is when the first original Sandman Golden Age issue came out. That is beautifully caught. And I think that one of Neil's um, and the artists and Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg's contribution is that mm -hmm. Neil took this golden age character who wore a gas mask and then created a mythology mm -hmm. in which instead of him yeah. taking the gas mask and doing a version that is this cool helm, it is now mm -hmm. in this mythology, the gas mask that is a feeble mortal attempt to emulate the Sandman's helm. Exactly. Exactly, which I absolutely love. That twist is just beautiful. Um, so yeah, it's very fun kind of finding these things. I may not be able to pick up a lot, but that one I was able to get. <laughs> All right. So one of the things we wanted to do is go beyond the scenes, right? Uh, this is where we are going to talk about everything in its completeness. So this may have some spoilers. We're also going to be talking a little bit about the TV show. So everybody who is not interested in hearing about the TV show or doesn't want to hear any spoilers can go ahead and skip ahead probably about, I don't know, 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes. I'm not sure how long this is going to take. We're just kind of feeling our way. Um, so beyond the scenes is also where you can send your questions for either me or Elisa, and we will answer them as best we can. Elisa's experience working with the comics gives her a lot of inside information and knowledge to share. And of course, Elisa used to write when she was the editor, the letters in the sand um, part of the comic book experience, which is pretty common part of comic books that we have the, the editor answering questions. Um, if you have story or narrative questions, I can answer those. So can Elisa because she's also like an amazing writer. So send your emails to endless at chipperish.com and we will answer anything that comes in in our Beyond the Scenes uh, section. But for right now, um, what we want to talk about a little bit is the TV show, right? Because the TV show is going to be coming out. We don't know when, uh, but Netflix did uh, give us an official behind-the-scenes video. So they're clearly ramping up their, their promotions machine here. Um, and Elisa, did you watch the video? Um 
was that the one with the artwork? I think I did. It's, yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. show, it yeah. shows the beautiful artwork and it, it's, yeah. So we mm-hmm. don't see any of the actual show yet. Um, we don't have no. any of the show clips. We get a little bit behind the scenes. We see Neil kind of moving around on sets and stuff like that. Uh, but mostly it's it's just kind of like a quick promotional thing. But it was exciting. Yeah. I was kind of excited to see it. We have been uh, sort of planning doing this podcast in anticipation of the TV series coming out and to see that machine get grinding um, was kind of fun. We'll have a link to the video released by Netflix in the show notes. Uh, There's also been some discussion of the casting. Gwendolyn Christie of Game of Thrones fame, um, who I absolutely loved as uh, as the Lady Bran. Um, She's amazing. I am so excited to see her in this. Um, And we've we've got a little bit other casting. There was some a controversy, I guess, about the casting of death. One of the things about comics is that, you know, it's visual. And so we're, we're going to meet mm-hmm. death. Um, is it in the next issue or the issue after? But we're going to meet death mm-hmm. who is um, she's she's d- described as this very young looking, slender, uh, small breasted, uh, which was a big deal because in that time period, I think all the women in comics mm-hmm. were, you know, really well endowed. Um, and mm-hmm. she had this sort of elfin goth look, but she was also drawn as Dream was with very, very white pale um, complexions. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, there were also um, collectibles. Uh, There were, you know, Mm -hmm. limited edition statues and things like that. And I think that a lot of people really, really wanted to see their collectible death statuette come to life. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, I, you know, any mortal is uh, going to have some trouble with that. But they did cast um, an African-American woman who... Uh, you mm-hmm. know, is is not going to look exactly like the bone white incarnation of death in the uh, in mm-hmm. the collectibles. People have had some yeah. trouble with this. Well, which is a shame because it's Kirby Howell Baptiste, who is one of my favorite people. I loved her in The Good Place. And I also watched uh, the first uh, season of Why Women Kill, um, in which she was beyond fantastic. Um, and one of the things that that often happens when we have an adaptation is that uh, people look for it to basically be a direct translation, like beat for beat moment moment for moment, just, you know, into another form. And as we were talking about, you know, earlier, form does influence the way in which a story is told. And the whole point of adaptation is that you can take the heart and the spirit of a story and then translate it into a different form. It means there are certain things that are going to need to be changed. Now, um, Sandman as a comic, I think is incredibly white. You know, uh, what we see is the vast majority of speaking characters are white. I think the only one that is is Daniel Bustamante, um, who is one of the uh, the people who kind of gets caught up in in the dream sleepy sickness, and so we follow sort of him uh, through that process. Um, one of the things that we do with that, which is a little unfortunate, is that we do dialect writing, which is something that I have a very very strong opposition to. Um, dialect writing is when we write dialogue, um, spelling things out phonetically to the way that like maybe a particular accent sort of sound.
backgrounds, anybody who um, listened to my Outlander podcast or watched uh, Sex and, and Whiskey, my uh, my Outlander podcast, um, will hear me talk about that, um, that I think it's a bad idea. Um, because for one, it's really, really hard to read. On the other hand, it also can seem like you're mocking the people who have that, um, who have that, that dialect. So the best thing to do is to simply choose words that are are formed in the way that that sentence structure would be would be formed by that person and then that will sort of give you the sense of of their accent but it, it can look like it's mocking particular ethnicities and um, that said let me again state as I always do that we are all of us writers everybody involved products of our culture and our environment that we grow up seeing these things that it takes us sometimes a while to sort of ferret out the nuances of that, um, especially, you know, as white people, like sometimes it can be very difficult to see the ways in which the things that you have learned can be destructive. So learning how they are destructive, changing the ways in which we approach those things um, and and moving into a way to tell our stories that does no harm, that is a process, you know. So when I bring up these things, I am not um, condemning writers or editors or anybody who let that go at that time that was something you don't know what you don't know and when you know you do better and then that's the best we can do and i i think that there is i think neil was ahead of his time in so many ways Mm -hmm. as we go through the series we're going to see choices that neil made that were really uh i think more progressive than than most people were at the time Mm -hmm. however you know, if you are doing the exact same thing you did in 1988, then you can no longer call yeah. yourself a progressive. You know, we do have to progress if you're going to be progressive. Yes. Um, by the way, an aside, I just I just did um, a prose novel for Marvel with the character Rogue, mm-hmm. and people asked why didn't I write Sugar? You know, S U G A H, and it's because I was taught very firmly that dialect was um, you know was basically mm-hmm. like imprisoning Morpheus. You were going to pay for it dearly, and it was a very bad idea. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I avoided it. Yes, it is a bad idea. A dialect is definitely a bad idea, mm-hmm. but. Anyway, to go back to, uh, you know, actually, I've got a funny story to tell that, you know, yeah. um, we had a bunch of really gifted artists doing depictions of the endless back in, in the 90s, mm-hmm. early 90s. And Simon Bisley, who's an amazing and kind of wild artist, gave a depiction of Delirium, who's usually done as mm-hmm. this lovely, but sort of rainbow insane waif <laughs> and mm-hmm. and she looked badass which is one thing delirium has never been now all of the endless part mm-hmm. of the mythology is that they look different depending on who is viewing them and so that you know mm-hmm. if i am you know if if i am white i might see uh, my the endless as white if if i'm african-american mm-hmm. i might see them as, you know if i'm a cat i might see them as a cat right but this was a very different interpretation. And so I remember, you know, mm-hmm. debating and we were saying like, well, the endless, it is part of the mythology on the other hand. And then finally, um, uh, uh, the editor, Dan Raspler, uh, came up and said, you've got my artwork. And I said, what do you mean? He said, that's Simon Bisley. That's Lobo's girlfriend. <laughs> and here I've got delirium. <laughs> and so we exchanged the pages. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, that's a long winded story. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, for me, mm-hmm. 
I do expect death to look a certain way. But for me, I think it's more important that she has this sort of waifish, innocent look. Um, and mm-hmm. this and, and an aspect of her that's sort of very deliberately optimistic. And mm-hmm. so I certainly don't think, you know, I, I, I might have more trouble if, you know, Gwendolyn Christie, who's amazing, was going to play death because yeah. she's got a very different physicality. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, so that that's that's where I knit out with it. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, too, that an actor who is, you know, very, very good at their job can pretty much pull off anything. Kirby Hal Batiste is amazing. Like, I have loved her. I haven't seen her in a lot. She's fairly new. Um, but uh, but I absolutely adore her. I think that she's wonderful. And having more um, diversity in any story is always a good thing. Having more representation. The thing that happens is that when we tell extremely like white centered stories, what we're doing is taking these amazing narratives and deliberately making them like less accessible to everyone, and that we want them to be accessible to absolute everyone. So the people who have a problem with that are just going to have to have a problem until they get over it and learn how to enjoy and open up. If you love a narrative, you want, I mean, when you love something, don't you put it in the hands of everybody you know? Like you want these things to be accessible. You want them to be inviting and open to people, you know, from different backgrounds. Um, And by doing that and by also not not doing colorblind casting where we're like, oh, we're just, you know, going to cast a black woman in this role, but we're not going to think about what the experience of being black in the world will, how that would affect her, even as an endless, you know, um, I think that that would be a mistake. Um, but if we're putting people in those roles and we're actually allowing the entirety of the experience of being black, of being a woman, you know, um, of all of these different parts of experience. Experience, allowing that into our narrative, it breathes so much more life into everything and it makes stuff that you love more accessible to everybody. So decisions like this, I think if you love Sandman, you got to love this. It's bringing more people to Sandman. I, I think... I think you, you know, and it's interesting because I know, you know, I, I don't know exactly how the fact that the actress is African-American is going to impact mm-hmm. death because she is yeah. an archetype. But, you know, it mm-hmm. it strikes me that I, I, I've learned that there's this term, um, the unmarked state. And I used to think mm-hmm. of it um, when I didn't have that language as the default setting. And I think that the default setting mm-hmm. for human was for many years, a white, skinny, 30 something dude. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, that mm-hmm. was the guy that was the every man and the every man, you yes. know, w- was a man. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, I think in some ways that for some people, it feels like there's there's food, which is the food I'm used to eating, and then there's mm-hmm. ethnic food, which are other people's dishes. And I think yeah. that what we are slowly nudging towards is there is no, you know, the food that I eat and I'm used to, or white 30-something dudes, this is not some universal state yeah. and everything else is a variation. We are all variations. And so, you know, yeah. it, I don't know if I'm expressing that as clearly, but I think that people thought, 
in part perhaps that white was the default setting without thinking. They didn't think it. They kind of felt it in the way one feels unexamined positions. Yes, exactly. And here's the thing, that whenever people have that reaction, creating a space for them to realize that maybe they're not thinking about this and this in its fullest expression, that maybe they're not understanding everything about their response, that they're having a knee jerk response, and that you can improve from that, like you can broaden your view. Um, You know, with the exception of like, there's people who are actively and deliberately racist, and you know, whatever, but the people who just need to be brought along. You know, like, I feel like there's a space for that. Um, And so I'd like to see them come along. I think that however they decide to do the rest of this casting is great. I would love to see as much diversity as humanly possible. I would love to see great stories open their arms to new people who are not the, you know, default 30 something white guy, you know, or, you know, white woman who that guy is big breasted, small waisted, you know, white woman that is supposed to be an idea as well. I, I'm also really curious as to how they're going to interpret Death's fashion sensibility. Mm-hmm. She was designed to be a goth girl uh-huh. and goth was much more prevalent in the late 80s and early 90s as a, a subculture. It meant a certain thing. Um, I I won't say that I know everything that's going on Um Everything else from the late 80s, early 90s is having a resurgence, resurgence, Mm -hmm. including like pleated denim. I thought it would never come back. (laughs) You know, the denim with like the little pleats and and the high waist. Oh, it's terrible. Yes. I I cut. No, no, I'm not going to. I. I liked my pleated okay, denim. I am like ready them. to go back there. No, so I just, I'm really, I'm very curious mm-hmm. how the actress Kirby uh, Batiste. Kirby Howell Batiste. Kirby Howell Batiste. Mm-hmm. I'm really um, curious how she will embody the role and, and deliver mm-hmm. the lines. But I also really want to know what the hair and makeup and costuming is going to yeah. be. I'm very excited to see it. And I am firmly in the camp that this woman can do anything. So I'm very excited. I cannot wait. Um, all right. So moving into our next section here, we have for Sleep of the Just, our Byronic Brood scale, where zero is just sitting here dreaming to 10, which is, <laughs> where is my goddamn Ruby? All right. So, um, Elisa, for Sleep of the Just, where are you on the Byronic brooding scale? Wow. This, I think, is truly, um, I think it's pretty damn broody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's full, you know, I, I'm trying to think about what's coming up. I, I think, I mean, Here's my question. The only thing this would keep this from being peak broody is mm-hmm. that sometimes when you're in crisis, the brooding and the moroseness is what comes after. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it an 8.5. 8.5? I like it. I gave it a 6. I give it a 6 really? because I don't know what our scale is. Like, I know that Sandman, I get the sense that Sandman is going to be pretty broody. Most of this, he's kind of just sitting in a glass or biding his time. So. He's totally brooding. He's brooding it seems like his what time. else has he got to do? What else has he got to do? He is brooding his time. So I had it as a six because I wasn't sure like how far we were going to go with like deep, deep brooding. Is it? Okay. So if you're brooding, 
um, but you're plotting other people's revenge in a kind of patient, slow simmer mm-hmm. way. Is that brooding? I think that's... I think it's brooding. It's just that we didn't see a lot of it. Like it was background mm-hmm. stuff. We didn't see him brooding. We saw him look people dead in the eye and be like, hey, no. Like that was all he said. Um, and then we spent all of our time really with our protagonist of Sleep of the Just, which of course was our, with the villain, mm-hmm. you know, Roderick Burgess yeah. and his son, Alex. Um, so because we didn't spend as much time brooding with Dream, I give it a six. But I think that Dream, like in his experience, was super broody. So if we're if we're just looking at it from Dream's experience, that definitely bumps it up a couple of points. But because our experience of his brooding was fairly limited. I, I think you raise an excellent point. I mean, I'm just assuming that if this whole story had been from Sandman's point of view, it would have been an 8.5. Oh, it would have been, it would have been max broody. I probably would have given it a 10, but we weren't in his POV that much. So, you know, it is what it is. Oh, wait, um, wait till he starts getting into his ex-girlfriends. Then. Oh, we, I'm we, you very know, there's excited. Always, yeah, there's there's always room for more broodiness when, you know, hurt romantic feelings come into play. I am super excited about that. All right. So now we are to the favorite page. This is where both Elisa and I each pick a page from the reading that was our favorite. And I'm going to, you know, open up the curtain a little bit and give you guys a little bit behind the scenes. Um, Elisa asked me about my favorite page. Now, again, I'm not that, like, you know, I haven't read a lot of comic books. I'm not that well versed in the language of comics. Looking at this, I don't know what is the most beautiful page or what is the, what is the most skilled as far as the art and the writing and everything goes. Um, So when she asked me, I was a little bit embarrassed because I was like, well, I don't know if this is actually like the best page, but it's kind of my favorite page. Um, and it is page, it's it's number 23 in the Kindle Virgin. Vir, virgin. There we go. Virgins are an entirely <laughs> other discussion. I think it's, it's page 12. I think I don't have a page number on. No, it's page. Well, it's page 19 in my Sandman omnibus. Okay. So in my in my Kindle version, it's page 23. Um, and it is the the page with all the panels that are are, you know, warped and blue. We're looking their circles it's like it's from dreams perspective, lens. the fisheye lens. Exactly. Um, as as we're looking from dreams perspective inside the orb and it ends. The final word of the page is patience. Right, which is really Dream's superpower. Yes. The key to his ultimate domination of his captors is just patience. So here we are, so deeply in his experience, looking at his captors through the the curve of the orb, um, and it's all in blues. You know, we just have blue and black and white, and that's basically what the page is with these six little orbs that we're seeing the progression of his experience. Um, and I just I love that page, and so I was like, well, I'm not sure if it's really the best. Page page or whatever. And then I told Elisa and Elisa was like, oh, I picked that page too. <laughs> so now I feel like really validated. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to describe this page yes. a little bit for a second. So this is actually a six panel page. <laughs> so a six panel page, a panel can be considered panels are often, you know, if you were to divide a page into six and there's some kind of a, a gutter and a yes. holding line in comics. And the gutter is the empty um, space, correct? The gutter is the empty space. I've been so studying each- my comic language. <laughs> Excellent. I'm, I'm, I feel like I should have gold stickers when you oh, do that. Oh, thank you so no. much. That's what I want. I just want a gold sticker. <laughs> 
We we all do. I, yeah. But but so this is each panel can be considered a unit of time in that mm-hmm. you sort of pause on that. You could call it a beat. Yes. So mm-hmm. you've got six moments or six beats, and when they're equal, they it kind of gives that feeling that each takes up the same amount of time. Usually, a mm-hmm. larger panel is. A bigger moment, a longer moment, mm-hmm. smaller panels all crammed together feel like time is going by more quickly. Mm-hmm. So we've got the six panels and they are they are really give the feeling of a, a circular but like a globe because it's done as if it's a three-dimensional. And so we see uh, and we realize bit by bit that we are actually seeing things through the eye, you know, the eye mm-hmm. pieces of of uh of the dreams helm and mm-hmm. so he we see for the first time his reversed word balloon and his first line is trapped yeah the second is observe and then threats mm-hmm. and finally patience and so we and we see the people coming to gawk at him like a creature in a zoo mm-hmm. um people threatening people you know ask you know demanding things and so all of a sudden, you know, after this beginning in which, as, as you so, you know, beautifully put, that, that this is, you know, the, the featured, you know, the, the, the featured, this is supposed to be a Brad Pitt movie, but, you know, we right. haven't seen Brad Pitt or we've barely seen him and he, we haven't mm-hmm. heard from him. And suddenly, in a way that still preserves his mystery, we are in his head in his point of view. And he's still not giving us very much to go on, but we are in his experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so incredibly powerful. I really, really love that. All right, Elisa. So overall, Sleep of the Just, what's your favorite part? So my favorite part, um, I'm going to skip to, I I love to look at the artwork while I'm talking um, because Mm -hmm. then I can sort of describe. So we've seen, the first time we see Alex, um, Burgess, right? I'm, yes. I'm having a, a moment. Alex of, Burgess is the son. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want everyone to understand that we're recording this at night and I get stupider with every <laughs> passing moment until I sleep and then I'm smart again. So anyway, Alex Alex Burgess starts as the son. So when we first see him um, at the beginning, he's this little kid with round glasses and he's got some innocence to him. Mm-hmm. And we see him as uh, uh, an observer as his father's doing the ceremony to capture and so in in that panel there the father is holding a cat and we see a little purr and then we see a knife held and mm-hmm. we understand that this cat is being sacrificed so now we go towards the end of the comic when finally sandman is out and going to take his revenge on alex and we see that alex is now an old man and he looks almost exactly like his father did at the mm-hmm. beginning when his father was the old man but as he passes a mirror we see that image of him as a younger man and then he goes into a, a, a top like attic room and we see a black cat mm-hmm. and the black cat walks into a throne and and uh and sits in that throne and looks at alex and becomes morpheus becomes dream (laughs) and this is sort of interesting we at this point i don't think people understood that dream appears differently that he doesn't Mm -hmm. just have one aspect so you know probably for a first-time reader it's just oh look you know that cat just becomes it's another one of his magic powers Mm -hmm. but 
I think it's a wonderfully subtle moment. Um, because why? Why is Morpheus choosing to be a cat in that mm -hmm. moment? Why does he not just first appear as himself? And I don't know. I don't remember this. This has been a long time since I reread this before. But I think it's because of that cat that was killed. Mm -hmm. And as a writer, I think, you know, you can't just throw away, even though it's off screen, you know, a cat was sacrificed. And people mm -hmm. have a lot of emotions about that. And, you know, you always have oh, to be about really, animals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we feel those things really deeply. Mm -hmm. And you would think, okay, was that a throwaway moment because this person's a bad guy? And is it just showing us that he's a bad mm -hmm. guy? And I think this is a moment that has more resonance. I think mm -hmm. that Sandman's choosing to first appear as a cat, as his cat aspect, is that he is also the dream of cats. And we will see more about this later. I don't know oh, if this God, is not in fun. the scope of, of I think, the, the, the comics that we're covering for the series. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a little note visual note that says to me he is taking this revenge not just for himself but also for one of his dreamers mm -hmm. and that he does not forget differentiating between black and white that he does not mm -hmm. necessarily give preference to human dreamers over dreamers of other species wow i love it i love it um all right so my favorite part is at the end Dream gets free, right? He travels through the dreams of others. He has nothing. This is his beginning, his time to rebuild himself and his world. And it reminds me of the tower card in the tarot. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the tower is probably my favorite card in the tarot, although it is an absolutely terrible experience to actually have. But the tower card is when, you know, you've built this tower, you're at the top of it, um, you've made it every day, every stone, every piece, and then it crumbles underneath you and you fall to the ground with nothing but destruction all around you and you have to rebuild. Um, and that is where dream is. He is at the beginning of rebuilding himself. Everything is destroyed. And I love these rise from the fall stories. You know, how do you build yourself back up after losing everything? And that's how we end Sleep of the Just. That's where it ends with him being like, we're doing this thing, you know, um, he's getting back into it. He's got a goal and he's just going to build up his strength and get it done. Um, and I absolutely love that. Yeah, absolutely. That was actually another favorite part of mine. And the fact that you get to see his cleverness and his resourcefulness, you know, I, I think a lot of us were told as writers initially to make a character relatable or likable. You have to make them likable by showing a, a pet that cat or save the cat <laughs> moment. Right. Um, actually, we do have that now that I think about it. But mm -hmm. I think that the other thing that that we acknowledge now makes characters, um, you know, if if not admirable, then, then characters that are riveting to us, like Hannibal Lecter, is mm -hmm. when we see people being resourceful and smart and uh, yeah. good at what they do. And we mm -hmm. get to see that in, your, in, in the section that you pointed out. Absolutely. I love it. If you 
enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast. Um, Elisa, is there any, where should people find you? Um, out on social media. Oh, I am at a Quitney on Twitter, and I have forgotten my Instagram. <laughs> so that's okay. It's probably it. something similar. And yeah, I'm on. I'm on the. I'm on the show. The Facebook, as the children say, as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can find me, and I will be back here. And this episode of The Endless was brought to you by the chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. Oh, Stephania, and so now we need a Stefania. So if anyone right. named Stefania <laughs> would like to come and support us, please. We need you to, to have the three, right? A three is yes. a magical number. So yeah, we got to fill that out. <laughs> and this week's special message for our power producers. The order isn't just a way to make money and get laid. Some of it's real. <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> you are quoting what we just read. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or stop your nightmares by going out at night, knocking out bad guys with sleeping gas and throwing sand on them. Because sure, why not? (laughs) We will be back next time with Sandman Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes, Issues 2 and 3, Imperfect Hosts, and Dream a Little Dream of Me. Until then, to reward you for your years of hospitality, I give you this eternal waking. <laughs> and hot I flashes. I love it. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs>